Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. When we think of the Italian Renaissance, our minds often go to well-worn high school generalizations about the great leaps in art and culture that emerged during the 15th and 16th centuries. But in a new book, Virtue Politics, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy, Harvard professor James Hankins reassesses some of our core assumptions about this historical period. Professor Hankins argues that many great Renaissance thinkers were as much concerned with shaping the character of citizens as with reforming great cultural and political institutions. He also challenges the link between the Renaissance and republicanism, and urges readers to stop imagining Machiavelli's principles of statecraft as being completely exemplary of Renaissance thought. Professor Hankins focuses closely on earlier writers, such as Petrarch, Boccaccio, and Bruni, whose work predated the military catastrophes that inspired Machiavelli's grim rail politique, and he shows how their, quote, virtue politics shaped our study of the humanities to this day. This month, Professor Hankins spoke on the phone to Quillette contributor Alexandra Hudson, an Indianapolis-based author who has explored the way that Renaissance ideas can help lead the way to modern civic renewal. Here are excerpts from their conversation. I think it's important to get some definitions in order. So what is a renaissance? Well, I've taught a course on the renaissance for many years. And what I usually tell my students is that you need to have three conditions for a renaissance. First of all, have to have a sense of loss, a sense that corruption is spreading, that there's growing barbarism, that behavior is becoming more inhuman. Perhaps political life is suffering from extreme partisanship. It's suffering from tyranny. There's a lot of overheated rhetoric, cruelty, the spirit of conquest. So that's one condition. Another condition is that you need literati, people who read history and read, know about the past, who realize from their studies that there was a better time, that things in the past worked better. They understand that no time is perfect, but there were some times in the past when things had been better managed, that there were better human beings, that there were better institutions, and that we could conceivably go back to that. So that's the second condition. And the third condition, which is often overlooked, is that the literati have to capture the imagination of people with wealth and power. They have to persuade them to engage in a project of civilizational renewal, of going back to a, a better time, modeling oneself on a better period of the past. And they have to create a kind of critical mass of influential people, wealthy people, but people of, of high position in society, people who are influential. And then if they can do that and they can get those people on board with this project of civilizational renewal, then you can have a renaissance. What makes the Italian renaissance different? I think in the case of the Italian renaissance, it's a question of scale. There have been many renaissances in history, Carolingian renaissance, the Theodosian renaissance, the 12th century renaissance, some greater, some lesser. And the Italian renaissance is a major shift, so much so that we can refer to the entire period 
as a renaissance, in which you have, among many literati, a rejection of the recent past, which they were the first to call the medieval period. Humanists invented this idea of the medieval. It's also a revival of antiquity, and since the time of Burkhardt in the 19th century, the great founder of Renaissance studies, Renaissance has been regarded as the beginning of the modern world. So, as one of my teachers used to say, the modern world backed in, into modernity. We backed into modernity. We were looking at the past and we became modern as a result of trying to bring back the past. Interesting. So, the topic of your book is virtue politics, soulcraft and statecraft in the Italian Renaissance. What is virtue politics? Well, virtue politics is essentially the Renaissance as applied to the world of politics. So, it's an approach to political reform that aims to improve the moral character and the practical wisdom of elites so that political institutions will work better and resist corruption. So it emerges at a time when the great authorities of medieval Christendom had lost a lot of their legitimacy, especially the papacy, the Holy Roman Empire. A lot of people had lost respect for law, lack of trust between elites and non-elites which is very similar in some ways to, to what our current condition is. So there are a lot of people who had lost respect for the law and there was nobody to enforce it. You know, Dante has this famous line about what good is it to repair the harness of Justinian if there's no emperor in the saddle? So what good is it to cite legal mechanisms and institutions when you have tyrants running societies? And a lot of Northern Italy was run by tyrants there was a lot of factionalism in the republics of central Italy, and southern Italy was under the control of French adventurers, the Anjou House of Anjou. So it was a pretty bad time in the 14th century, not to mention you know, economic collapse, the Black Death, you name it. And there was a great feeling among literati led by Petrarch, Francesco Petrarch, that things had to change, that they had to go back to antiquity, they had you know, a reset a new start to European civilization. So Petrarch was the initial humanist for this new intellectual movement. Tell us more about Petrarch. Well, there had been people around for several generations who were inspired by the literary heritage of classical antiquity who were imitating ancient writings. But Petrarch really brings the movement together. He's a kind of magnet, and he, he galvanizes people to formulate this new kind of education, which he calls the humanities. He was a, famous as a vernacular poet. That's still what he's most famous for today, for the writing of vernacular poetry. That's what's uh, read of him today in schools. And they've forgotten the side of him that is a educational and political reformer, partly because that side of him is in Latin and not in Italian. It's much easier for people to read Italian today than Latin. Petrarch was a very famous poet and a student of antiquity. He loved old books, a great book collector. He is interested in getting back to the Rome of antiquity. His first taste of this is with a man named Cola di Rienzo, who is a famous, um, well, Republican firebrand, one might say, except that he was, like many Republican firebrands, he was an autocrat. You mentioned that the Renaissance was an attempt to reform elites. 
This is a relevant question today, kind of a chicken and the egg problem. Is it leaders that matter more or are there voters that put them there? Will a moral revival of citizenry yield better leaders or is it virtuous leaders that, that bring out the best in a noble citizenry? Well, uh, I should say that the humanists were interested in reforming ordinary citizens as well as elites. The fact is that most Renaissance city-states in Italy were run by very small groups of people. So if you're interested in having an influence on society, you're going to focus on the elites. But if you read someone like our friend Francesco Patrizzi, he's also very interested in, in having a virtuous citizenry. And he even makes the argument that rulers cannot be virtuous unless citizens are virtuous. But the idea of virtue, which sounds very sort of pious today, it just means human excellence, but includes moral excellence. It's, it's unlike modern technical elites, which are qualified by training in social science or in some science. Uh, the idea of the Renaissance elite is a moral elite, cultured people, well-educated people who have studied history and moral philosophy and give some kind of orientation, moral orientation to society and who will have the character to support institutions and make those institutions function well. Virtue politics works on three separate fronts. Through education, that's the most important area, but also through institutions. You have to have good institutions to, to support virtue. You have to have a Senate, for example, was one of the institutions that the Renaissance was fond of, wise men who had experience in government. Uh, the Renaissance, of course, is a revival of ancient culture, not just of ancient politics. But the culture and the politics really go together. Many of the artists are inspired by the idea of what I call the virtuous environment, creating a world which reminds Italians of their noble Roman forebears, statues, paintings, architecture, literature, philosophy, all these things revived from antiquity are, are meant in, in some way to improve the quality of elites, to inspire them with the ideals of antiquity, which were so much respected in this time. We live in a very anti-elitist, anti-institutional moment. Is there room for mass humanities education today in our, in our very egalitarian moment? Well, yes, I think so. The, the very first call for educated citizenry, uh, the very first person who ever said all citizens have to be literate, able to read Latin, that's what he meant, uh, came from Francesco Patrizzi in, uh, in the 1470s. And this is part of his idea that citizens and rulers are mutually reinforcing, right? That they have to be, they have to share a common culture. Uh, now, nowadays, the elites and non-elite citizens have very different culture. This has been pointed out by many. So one thing that the humanities, uh, or at least some humanists, wanted to accomplish was create a kind of unified culture binding together the elites and the non-elites. Most of the effort is focused on elites just because they're the most powerful people in society. You know, in recent times, we have this terrible disconnect between elites and non-elite citizens. Not only in democracies, but even in countries like China, it's rather suppressed in countries like China, but the elite in the Communist Party is not necessarily well-loved by the people who are subject to its rule. One of the reasons for the disconnect is they lack a shared culture, but also the elites have become very selfish. If you talk about the problem of populism with members of the elite, you read you know, journals and 
and uh, newspaper accounts of populism in elitist publications, all of the faults are on the side of the people. The people are stupid. The people don't understand, you know, what we elites are doing for other. They have a narrow-minded. They're racist. They're sexist. They're nativist. They they have all these moral faults. And uh, I think personally that the elites ought to look at themselves a bit more and ask whether what they're doing is really morally acceptable. For example, is it really acceptable for the CEOs in the United States to make 287 times what the lowest paid workers make? You know, is that an acceptable way of conducting an economy? So I think one thing we can get from from humanists is a focus on elite reform. They need to get themselves caring once again about the common good and about economic justice and about social justice. Not social justice in the form of identity politics, but real social justice, which would be a way of creating harmony between classes. It is a very old conviction in the West, going back to Plato and Aristotle, that it is possible to give people some kind of help in improving character. So if you can get a critical mass of people to embrace high standards, aristocratic standards, one might say, which are but true aristocracy, Jefferson's true aristocracy, then you can, I think, at least shame people into better behavior. That has actually historically been possible in the past. So the idea that we have today that humanities have no possible influence on character, it's just uh, that they're just there for entertainment purposes to give you a richer, fuller life, well, that may be true, but there, there is, I think, the possibility that through some kind of educational reform, uh, and especially through buy-in from prestigious members of the elite and perhaps government, that we can raise standards again, make people aware of the loss of, of civility and decency and kindness and all the virtues that used to be, I think, more common in American society than they are today. Yet we do have a keen sense of morality in our current moment. People have very sensitive understandings of what is just, what is unjust, what is what is acceptable, what is not. Looking at the culture of shaming online, everyone's faults are magnified and condemned in a second and seen around the world. And I'm still interested in this question of how is there room for diversity and, and embracing a sort of common standard of virtue and, and moral excellence? Yeah, well, I think we've gone a little bit too far in embracing the diversity ethos. It's a rather shallow form of morality. Diversity can be a good thing. It obviously is a good thing in many ways, but we have to pay attention to harmony. And for harmony, we need to have common values. I agree that there is a kind of hypersensitivity to external morality, things like speech and uh, and behavior. One of the problems I see with the the people who are promoting wokeness, is that they often focus on other people, but they have no concern for their own character. And what they're doing is often a sign of very low character, a lack of justice, a lack of generosity, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of the kind of toleration that you need in societies for them them to work well. In other words, reform in the modern world, it's not enough simply to have an over-tender conscience about racism and so on. You really have to start with yourself. And this is what I think that education should return to, is a concern for one's own character. We need to have an ambient culture that 
will praise and blame, like the humanists did, those who act well and those who act badly. And for that, we need, of course, common standards, not just saying, isn't it wonderful that people believe different things, but we, we need to think about what the common moral standards are of all cultures and what, how we can elevate those and instill them in individuals. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. Your book is structured as an overview of virtue politics, an overview of the Renaissance, and then it's a series of biographies of great men of the Italian Renaissance. Francisco Patrizzi and Leonardo Bruni are two that really interested me, in addition to Petrarch. And I know Patrizzi is someone that you really admire in your own work and own life. And so maybe we should start with him. Well, I'm currently trying to turn turn him into the political theorist par excellence of the Italian Renaissance. And I'm engaged in a translation project, and I'm writing a monograph about him. So he's kind of dear to my heart. It's a, it's a name that nobody knows. But I think his name should be up there with Machiavelli as not necessarily for his analytical sharpness, which uh, he doesn't match Machiavelli in that, but he he's a very profound and wise thinker. He was a Sienese, and he came, in other words, from a republic. Siena was a republic in the Renaissance. He starts off being a teacher of Greek in Siena. He comes from a pretty prominent family there. Uh, there's a whole group of humanist reformers in Siena, which had never been studied before as a group. What happens with Patrizzi is he tries to reform Siena. He's very distressed at the type of citizenship it has, where it's all about inheritance and nothing about virtue. He decides that the king of Naples is a virtuous sovereign, Alfonso of Aragon, and that it would be better if Siena simply submitted to his rule to give up a republic or a kingdom. This is something, by the way, that Plato also embraced, the idea that the way to reform a republic is to start by introducing a monarchy. I'm not recommending that myself, by the way. But anyway, he, he ends up getting exiled from Siena. He travels around. He wrote a great book about republicanism of the Renaissance shortly after being exiled, in which he basically tells the Sienese why he thinks their system falls short of ancient examples. Anyway, so he, he gets exiled. The Pope makes him governor in the Papal States, uh, and he's kind of a disaster at that. But he gains a lot of political 
wisdom and experience. And eventually he has to withdraw from that. He becomes the Bishop of Gaeta. He's, and he, he, he retires to this beautiful seaside town of Gaeta, where I've been many times, not to study Patrizzi, but just because it's got a great beach. And there he, he starts to write political theory. Uh, so the first book was, I mentioned, the one on, on the Republic, and the second one is on kingdoms. And he thinks both of these typical political institutional arrangements of his time, republics and principalities, can be reformed and should be reformed according to principles of ancient virtue. So that's what he spends the rest of his life doing. He's also a fine Latin poet. His poetry has never been published or hasn't been published uh, entirely. Uh, so he's a very interesting character. He has a type of prudence. He founds a tradition of political prudence that is more influential than people realize. He, I think, is one of the inspirations for Baudin and Grotius and Lipsius and their approach to political theory, their method of political theory, which is the use of historical examples and the study of the past in order to guide the prudence of the present. I'm curious, what are some examples of some things that he did that made him not a good leader when he was in a position of political power? Well, he was very briefly a governor of this, uh, of Foligno, I believe, in the papal states, a small town. It was kind of hopeless. The papacy was a very weak government. It had all these small towns under its rule in central Italy, but it had never done a very good job of running them. Furthermore, uh, there's a lot of wars and partisanship and a lot of factionalism in this town. And and uh, Patrizzi actually, was actually accused of corruption as governor, but he later was exonerated by the courts. He became very aware of problems of factionalism and problems of a city which did not have sufficient military strength to resist predatory neighbors. In that respect, he's like Machiavelli, because that's one of Machiavelli's big concerns. And Patrizzi also has a theory of how, how to build up the military power of a state so it can defend itself. So I think one can't really blame him for having an unsuccessful experience as governor of the papal states because few people did who were papal governors. What would you say was, was his crowning achievement? Why is he for you the kind of archetype of Renaissance civic humanism? Is it because of his two great works on reformation of kingdoms and republics? Yes, that's it. I think it's because of these two great works that he wrote. And they are great works. They are extremely popular. In the 16th century, they were more popular in Latin than Machiavelli was, reprinted dozens of times, translated into English, French, Italian, German. They've been completely forgotten since, uh, since the whole approach to political theory changed dramatically in the 17th century. Uh, he was left behind. However, I think that these books contain a lot of wisdom, a lot of prudence, in his sense, what I call humane prudence, to distinguish it from Machiavellian prudence, which is about predicting the future. He was a very fine Greek scholar, and he was really the first person to bring into political theory in a serious way the writings of Greek political theorists other than Aristotle. So tell us about Leonardo Bruni. Why does he merit inclusion in your book? Well, I started working on Leonardo Bruni in 1977. He's been with me a long time. I want to say that civic humanism, I'm trying to redefine civic humanism in the book because it tended to be associated with Republican regimes. And this is simply not the case. The concerns of civic humanists for citizenship, participation, engagement, all of them are, can be found in principalities as well as in republics. And that's actually the origin of my studies with Bruni because I realized that that was true. And Bruni was being held up as the archetypal civic humanist by the previous 
generation of scholarship. So I started with Bruni. Uh, he comes from a provincial town, comes to Florence to study law, but he's seduced by the humanities, uh, by a teacher of his who's also the chancellor of the city, a man named Cluccio Salatati. So he converts to the humanities, and it's kind of a conversion experience, which a number of humanists have. They convert from law studies to humanities. But there are professional opportunities as a humanist, and they're mainly uh, as teachers and as as secretaries and as uh, officials in chanceries, people who are basically involved in the language arts in uh, trying to communicate with other other towns. Uh, so he becomes the secretary of the Pope. He serves the Pope, actually serves four different popes in his 10-year career as a papal secretary. And this is absolutely the worst period in the history of the papacy. It's the, it's the period when they have not only two popes, but three, three popes, and the whole papacy is falling apart, and it gets put back together again, finally, at the Council of Constance in 1414 and 1415. Bruni's, unfortunately, on the side of a man who becomes an anti-pope as the result of the Council of Constance. So he goes back to Florence. He sets up as a private gentleman scholar. He has made a lot of money from the papal connections. And eventually, however, he gets called back to public service as the chancellor of Florence. Uh, he's in charge. He has the same job that his teacher Salatati had. He's in charge of writing the public correspondence of the state. It's diplomatic correspondence, which is a tremendously important role. His role becomes what we call the Secretary of State. So he's a kind of Secretary of State, except that he's a permanent official, not a political official. So it's in that role that he writes a famous history of Florence, or it's the first of the great uh, city histories of the Renaissance. And it's intended to be a work of political instruction for the kind of people who inhabit the public palace the political class of Florence are supposed to read its history to see how to behave, what kind of policies have been successful in the past and what type of an unsuccessful. So Bruni's trying to teach political prudence and virtue through his history of Florence. And his other great importance, I think, uh, is as a translator of Aristotle. Aristotle had been translated in the Middle Ages for the use of scholastic philosophers. For Thomas Aquinas in particular, in fact, there were a set of translations done for him by a man named William Merbeka. But William Merbeka was a fine scholar, but he was using a translation method, which is word for word. It was very hard to understand, required a commentary. What Bruni wanted to do is Aristotle for everybody. He wanted to make a, a popular translation of Aristotle. And he tried to translate them in such a way that ordinary people, educated people, could read them and be inspired by them and have their behavior improved by them. He becomes wealthy. He's the most famous Latin humanist of, of Europe in his time. He has, he has a public funeral, which is attended by the entire papal court, which is in Florence at the time. And, and then they build a magnificent tomb for him, which is you can still see if you go to Santa Croce in Florence, in the wall of of the church, where he's celebrated for his contributions to uh, history and to philosophy. You have a few chapters in your book dedicated to Machiavelli. Feel free to expound a little bit on, on Machiavelli and how you treat him in your book. Yes, well, Machiavelli is in my book for a couple reasons. One is that he's often taken to be the archetypal political theorist of the Renaissance, and I'm trying to show that that's not the case, that he's an outlier, you know, it's very hard to see that because the one book that people read of political theory from the Renaissance is Machiavelli's Prince. 
at least the Italian Renaissance, though, of course, read Moore's Utopia for the Northern Renaissance, but in the Italian Renaissance, Machiavelli is it, and I'm trying to show that he is not a dominant figure, or his dominance is in rivalry with another tradition of politics, which I call virtue politics. So that's one reason he's in the book. The other reason he's there is to, as a kind of foil to highlight the differences between virtue politics and realist forms of politics that uh, have their root in Machiavelli. So Machiavelli, I have a lot of respect for Machiavelli. Maybe that doesn't isn't evident in the book since I'm often trying to uh, compare him unfavorably with the humanists, but I have a great deal of respect for him. And he lived in a time when humanism, in his eyes anyway, had failed, a period when Italy lost its independence. The city-states of Italy were taken over by the French and then the Spanish and the Germans. They, they, they were tromping all over the peninsula. This started in 1494, when Machiavelli is a young man. By his time, virtue politics has been around for over a century, and he thinks it's a failure, uh, because when the French came down and invaded Italy, nobody stood up to them. Everyone acted from self-interested motives. There was no devotion to the common good, and uh, he thinks that the fault lies in the education of the princes that they were getting from these humanists. And he is, his idea is that the humanists have a wrong idea about how to get virtue, or the humanists think that it's kind of osmose into them from reading the classics, studying the classics, memorizing the classics, applying the classics, that it's all going to uh, kind of osmose into their bloodstream. Machiavelli thinks this is the wrong way uh, to imitate the ancients. We have to don't read the moral maxims of the ancients, but see what the ancients do sort of the way modern people judge politicians. Machiavelli says, if you look at what the Romans actually did, which is the project of his discourses, if you look what they actually did, they uh, they had their own kind of virtue. The Italian word is virtù, and Machiavellian virtù is the genuine virtue of the Romans, not the moralist version of, of Roman virtue. So he says, we look what the Romans actually did. They were completely ruthless, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And when they were humane, their humanity was was instrumental, that they were trying to get something. So Scipio Africanus is humane in Spain because it get, gets him uh, what he wants. But when he goes back to Italy, he, uh, he is cruel. Virtue is a, a tactic for him, uh, or at least traditional virtue is a tactic. But real virtue, Machiavellian virtue, is being able to get things done, its efficiency, its manly uh, strength, its uh, the ability to rule others, and it's the ability to resist foreign aggression and resist people who are trying to take away your power. What I'm doing in the book is to try to show why we shouldn't automatically accept Machiavelli's estimate of virtue politics, but think about the long-term effects of Machiavellian realism as well. Machiavelli's letter to Vittori when he's in exile, where he talks about how he slaves away the farm by day, and then at night he dresses up in costumes and engages in conversation with the ancients. And I think that's just such a beautiful description of just the, the intellectual life, the life of the mind. Would you say that's characteristic of the passion that these Renaissance thinkers had for, for the past? Yes, I think that people really believed that the past was going to solve their problems. They started off admiring uh, the Romans, 
But as time went on, they started reading Greek. They also started looking to Athens and to Sparta. In Florence, there was a long attraction to the Athenian democracy. And there were also, there begins in the Renaissance, the idea that maybe we can make a better society than the ancients. And the first example of this is among the Venetians, created a society based on philosophical prudence and not on accidents of time and fate. So their constitution, the Venetian constitution, was a philosophical creation. It's not like the British constitution or the Roman constitution that comes into existence over a long period of time. Uh, they think that their constitution was founded from the beginning by philosophical prudence. So in that respect, the Venetians are the ancestors of the American founders who are trying to do exactly the same thing. Can you tell us about the role of Christianity on Renaissance humanism and virtue politics? And what was the difference between the Christian humanists and the more secular humanists? There are no secular humanists in the Renaissance. There's nobody who's an atheist. If you're going to find atheism among Renaissance people, you're more likely to find them among scholastics than you are among humanists. The humanists were all, were all Christian humanists. Not all of them were fervent, of course. Many of them didn't care very much about religion at all. Many of them are very serious Christians, and they think that study of antiquity is actually going to improve Christian, Christian belief and practice. They're very much comforted by a book written by St. Basil of Caesarea to uh, young men who are questioning whether they should continue their education after learning letters. And Basil says, yes, you should go on uh, to study the classics because that's the preparation you need in order to be a good Christian. The humanists took a slightly different view. They also believe that studying the classics would improve Christian behavior. They're also concerned about reforming their political life of their community, and they have a problem in that one of the main powers of Italy is the Pope. There's a famous story about how the Duke of Milan pretends that he's having moral qualms and he's worried about his the next life, right? He's worried about being punished in hell. And so he writes to the Pope and says, you know, what should I do? for an act of restitution. And the Pope writes back saying, okay, I want you to give up certain towns on your border between the Papal States and, and the Duchy of Milan. Give them up to me. I want to control them instead. That's your act of restitution, right? So the humanists think that the way to get around this problem is to go to the past. And they go to the Christian past too, right? They're, they want to revive the Christian past, the evangelical past, the past of the Gospels of early Christianity. They also have a view that Christianity has become corrupt over time, and it needs to be restored according to ancient models. Uh, Petrarch admired particularly the time of Augustus. And why is that? Because Augustus uh, lived in the time when Christ was born. So it has a kind of divine seal of approval. Petrarch proves of the relationship between political power and religion in the period before Constantine. When Constantine converts to Christianity and eventually the Roman Empire becomes, uh, takes as its state religion Christianity, then things start to go downhill for, for Petrarch. Uh, that's a bad bargain. And that's, that's a common view among humanists that the, uh, when Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, it didn't turn out well for Christianity. It corrupted Christianity, it corrupted the Roman Empire. One reason why they wanted to have this really sharp separation between civil culture and religious culture between natural and the supernatural end of man, as Thomas Aquinas would put it, is because they really didn't think that putting together Christian authority and political authority was good for either one. 
Over the last several years, I understand you've been giving lectures in China on the resemblance between virtue politics and the Italian Renaissance and the Confucian ideals of an imperial China. And you end your book with a discussion of Confucian humanism. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you've experienced and what you've observed and how you've been received by your audiences. China is having a great renaissance of its pre-Republican past. They're trying to revive Confucianism all over China, both at the level of ordinary people and at the political and institutional academic levels. I've been struck by this resemblance for a long time. I first came in contact with this when I was lecturing on Machiavelli in China in 2013, which is the 500th anniversary of the prince. I acquired, as a result, some Chinese graduate students who came to work with me at Harvard, and I was explaining to them what I was doing with the Virtue Politics book. And they kept saying, oh, it's just like Confucius. And I said, no, 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 it's completely different from Confucius. This is Western, it's not Confucius. But over time, I, I started to realize that there was actually a lot of resemblances between Virtue Politics and the Confucian ideals. And they were recognized at the time. Uh, you may have heard of this very famous, great Jesuit missionary, Matteo Ricci, who went to China and tried to convert the Chinese to Christianity. But he was also someone who deeply appreciated Confucianism and studied new, new Confucianism very well, new Chinese. He's probably the best of the Jesuits when it came to a knowledge of Chinese. So he, and he knew the text of Confucianism. And he recognized in those texts the same sort of things he had been taught in his humanist education in Italy when he, when he was young. He, he thought that a country run by literati trained in the classics couldn't be, could, must be a great country, which is, you know, that's what Confucianism is about. So it's a very interesting parallel, which I've tried to follow up in various um, trips to China. And I've lectured on this, on the resemblance between Confucianism virtue politics, a number of universities in China. And I think people find it interesting in China because for much of the 20th century and 21st century, the Chinese have been told that their system is bad and they should imitate liberal democracy, right? That if they want to be modern, they want to be acceptable to other countries, they should become a liberal democracy. And some Chinese want that, but others don't. And then some guy from Harvard comes and says, look, you're political system was admired by the West and regarded as better. So, I mean, that's one of the things I think that, that has attracted the Chinese to this idea of virtue politics. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hankins, and really appreciated having you on the Quillette podcast today. Well, it was a great pleasure to talk to you again, as always, and happy to come back anytime. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you'll find more content.